We reserve the right for explicit language, but the algorithm reveals there is no such language in this episode. It's Tuesday, July 26th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Different people, humans, men, governors are running for president, maybe, could be, they say. And the names that are being bandied about, as one does these names, are Ron DeSantis, J.D. Pritzker, maybe Gavin Newsom from Florida, Illinois, California. And an element in evaluating the success of these governors is and will be how they do with COVID. But I realize upon reflection, there's no good answer to that on a national level, on a state level. Yes, the United States had over a million deaths, uh, excess deaths from COVID or deaths attributable to COVID. And if you look at the numbers from throughout the world, it's not good. We had about 311 people per 100,000 die of COVID. It's much higher, especially when compared to our pure nations. But what about the states when you look and evaluate themselves? We don't even really know what the lessons of COVID were. Like, did lockdowns work? Did masks work a little bit? To what extent did vaccines work? I mean, to a lot of extent to keep people uh, from dying, but it's not exactly as clear as if you got a vaccine, you lived, and if you didn't, you die. So I went through all the state statistics. And what I tried to do is to get an assessment. Some of these things might surprise you. And to see how much we can attribute state success to government policy. So we all know if we were living in, let's say, Utah, that we would maybe hear a report like this. And we did from Fox News 13 in January of 2021. Utah is facing a new battle. It's been named one of the states with the highest daily COVID-19 case rates in our country. And indeed, things seemed really bad in Utah because they seem bad everywhere. And that's the argo of local news. Things are bad around here. But if you look at the stats, Utah did great. In fact, other than Hawaii, an island, and Vermont, very small, Utah did the best half of the national average of deaths per 100,000. Utah had about 152 per 100,000 deaths from COVID. Like I said, the nation was over 300. So, I don't know if Utahans realize that their state did really well. I wonder what Arizonans think of their state. Because from almost the same time period, I could play you this tape from ABC 15 in Arizona, Phoenix in fact. The latest report from the CDC shows Arizona remains near the top of the list for when it comes to COVID-19 related deaths. Phoenix is the fifth largest city in the country and has the third highest mortality rate. And guess what? Arizona was the second worst when it came to COVID. So in the middle of it, it all seemed bad. Afterwards, as the dust settled and fewer people are dying, we could say that Arizona, and this is not adjusted for age, had 422 people die per 100,000. Well, what about the states where these governors that I mentioned are running? California did pretty well, 236 per 100,000. But Florida and Illinois, very close, 306 per 100,000 in Illinois and 359 in Florida. But it's really not fair because you have to look at the age-adjusted figures. And when you do that, Florida actually is better than Illinois when you take into account that the population of Florida is quite old. It was an age-adjusted figure of 276 in Florida and 272. We can't really get into the math of how they calculate it, but they do calculate it. And it just is an indication that Governor DeSantis, with the aged population he was working with, outperformed, by some ways of looking at it, his possible Democratic rival, J.D. Pritzker. California, by the way, did worse than both of them. California, with an 
age-adjusted death rate of 258 per 100,000, which is worse than the national average. All of those states, by the way, are worse than the national average. But I also said to myself, you know, this is some ways not fair. It's not just the age of the population that a governor is trying to keep alive. It's the health of a population. And when you look at the obesity rates for states, Florida has a pretty low obesity rate, 28.4% of their adults are obese, but Illinois has a much higher obesity rate, 32.4% of their adults. Given all that, I don't think any of these governors have a clear advantage over the others of saying they slayed the corona dragon. I do know this. All of the states that were worst performing in terms of every metric were consistent. The most deaths per 100,000, age-adjusted or not, Mississippi. And then down the list, as I said, Arizona, Alabama, West Virginia, and Tennessee. These are also the worst states in terms of vaccine rates. Well, after Wyoming, you have Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Tennessee. When you look at obesity, Mississippi, most obese. West Virginia, Alabama, Louisiana, little further down the list is Tennessee. So what's it all mean? I think in general, it's very hard for any governor anywhere to keep his state or her state very healthy. It is also clear that it was almost impossible for some governors of state that have lagging socioeconomic and health indicators to do much to protect the lives of his or her people. But of course, it's all doubly or trebly hard given that all these governors are governors of states in the United States governed by a man who promised us it was all going to go away. On the show today, I talk about bread and oil, a little bit of olive oil with a crust of semolina. No, just commodity prices, how they relate. But first, the first module of the International Space Station was launched in 1998. Astronauts have lived there since 2002, symbol of Cold War cooperation. And now we found out that Russia is pulling out. The Russians have announced possibly in a little bit of a peak over the Ukraine war, that they will no longer be cooperating in this symbol. All right, that's in our timeline. I give you another timeline. What if Russians landed on the moon first? That is the premise behind the Apple TV Plus show for all mankind. Now in its third season, they just announced a fourth, we're joined by the show's co-creators, showrunners, writers, and executive producers, Matt Walpert and Ben Nadivi up next. For All Mankind is in its third season on Apple+. Plus. It's the story of the U.S. space program if the Russians had gotten to the moon first. You know I like what-ifs, you know I like history, and I like looking at space if the telescope is a good one. Joining me now are Matt Wolpert and Ben Nadivi. They are For All Mankind's co-creators, showrunners, writers, executive producers. Hello, gentlemen. Welcome. Good to be here. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. So my first question is a really easy one. Did you want to make a show about space set against the backdrop of U.S.-Soviet relationships? Or did you want to make a show about U.S.-Soviet relations set against the backdrop of space? I think we wanted to do both. I mean, it's it's interesting. I think the 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 Cold War. This look. I think it started as a, something about the space program. That was sort of what our 
vision was for this. And the more we talked to Ron about it and between ourselves, we, we thought, well, no one like to see another story of what was the missions we already saw, you know, how they ended. Um, it would be interesting to kind of tell a different story where you see what could have been. And I think what really got us excited was the more we saw the programs that were canceled, actually, after we landed on the moon, um, including, you know, there were plans for the Sea Dragon. There were plans for Moon Base. There were, there were all these amazing plans that never came to life. There was a team of female astronauts who didn't, weren't really endorsed by NASA, but, you know, existed as like a parallel thought experiment, at least. It really existed. Yeah. And, and, you know, getting to bring all those things to life is, is such a great, uh, opportunity, but, but also, you know, Ben and I are, are obsessed with history, uh, and, and getting the chance to tell a story set against that backdrop. Um, what's fascinating about the space race, you know, people think of it in this vacuum of like, oh, it's just people trying to sort of, you know, um, design the best spacecraft and, and uh, do these amazing technological feats, but it was all driven by a fear of geopolitical domination. You know, it was a competition. It was a, uh, you know, when the, the Soviets launched Sputnik into space, America was in a panic of like, what are they gonna do? What, you know, what the high ground of space. And so there was this really interesting overlap about like how kind of a negative thing, the Cold War, drove humanity to its greatest technological accomplishments. And that tension between those two things is really what the show is all about. Yeah, of course we were, because we couldn't look ahead to 1991 and the Soviet Union cracking up or 2022 and what Putin had become. So, you know, in retrospect at all, it's the great flaw of looking at history to see that what unspooled was all inevitable. And another great flaw is is to forget the tensions and anxieties at the time. And your show captures that. Yeah, thank you. We, we, we really try to, um, look at the past, not through the lens. I mean, we do look at it through the lens of now, but we also try to capture, uh, to remind ourselves that these people don't know, you know, they're in their time. So their attitudes are of that time, not of our time. And so even in some of the, you know, more questionable attitudes about gay rights or feminism, those things we really wanted to make sure that there were characters representing the, the, a viewpoint that, you know, looking back, we're all like, oh, that's kind of, <laughs> that's not great. But, but it was of the time, you know? Right. So the Ron you mentioned is Ronald Moore, who's executive producer. He's from, he did a Star Trek series and he did a battle, the new Battlestar Galactica. I would say he's an optimist, right? A bit of a techno optimist and a, he doesn't go in for the dystopian branch of sci-fi as this show. It's not, totally cheery and for instance you just mentioned gay rights those have not progressed in the course of the show but some rights have the equal rights amendment was literally passed and you could see the through line your show demonstrates the through line of having women astronauts in space and the passage of that law so my question for you is female characters who are uh leading nasa and you know let's spoil a little bit of prominent political figures. Would you say that's because of the Equal Rights Amendment in the logic of your show? Or is it more that by having female astronauts, 
uh, it changed a little bit of attitudes and, you know, a little bit of a nudge in 1960, whatever becomes huge sea changes by 1980 or 1990, whatever. Kind of both the latter, probably more, I think representation matters. Right. And I think seeing female astronauts, seeing the images of female astronauts or being on the moon and being represented at NASA, I think would change history. Um, you know, the same way, you know, seeing certain members in TV shows in the past have changed history. I think it's interesting that the, the Equal Rights Amendment passed because of our alternate history as well. So, yes, it's part of that. But I think for us, you know, going back to your first question, the show is optimistic in the big picture. I think we are trying to look towards there's a, something about hope, the idea that if we go into space, if we if we invest in exploration, discovery, that good things will come of it. But that's not to say we're doing a utopian show where everything is, you know, milk and honey and great. Like we do want to show that with every push into progress, there's pushback as well. You talk about, or sometimes there are just glancing references, maybe for the sake of delight to pop culture. And sometimes Michael Jordan is drafted by the Portland Trailblazers, who did have the number one pick, right? And chose Sam Bowie. But sometimes things happen exactly as they did in real life. Like uh, in sports again, Kirk Gibson hits a huge home run against the Oakland A's. So I wanted to ask you, did you decide to put all those things in just to show, hey, sometimes things change, sometimes things don't. And so much of what is culturally important is really just the vagaries of chance and not the hand of history being dictated by macro events. Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, we put a lot of thought into what changes and what doesn't, uh, both in terms of tracking the butterfly effect, but also we're trying to sell this idea with the show that that this is an alternate history. So, so something very iconic, like who Michael Jordan plays for, uh, really sells that idea. And, and there are the it's and it's such an alternate history thing of like who someone chooses. It was a choice. That could that could be different, and on the on the Dodgers front, we are both Dodgers fans. So Gibson had to hit that home run. Like there was no way to change that. <laughs> right. We're like we wanted to make sure that stayed a part of history. <laughs> Just as you want to show that sometimes a small or smallish change leads to ripples in the butterfly effect. You also want to acknowledge that some of the things that we think of as so momentous really just come down to a coin flip. And half the time it's gonna be heads. And it doesn't even matter if the backdrop was the Russians got to the moon first or they didn't, or the entire Soviet Union collapsed or it didn't. So many things, really, really important things, even more important than uh, than Gibson taking Eckersley Yard. So many important things really do come down to chance. And I think that that's one of the things that it's important that your show is emphasizing. Yeah, and and I think that idea terrifies people sometimes. You know, we, we're such a believer in destiny, but I agree with you. I think for us, especially the further the show goes, you know, we jump a decade between each season. So early on in season one, when it was the 70s, every change was very, we, we talked out every change in alternate history. We felt why... Why did this change happen because of the space race? How did the space race motivate it? But then by the time we get to the 80s and 90s, to your point, you know, the butterfly effect would have spread so much that we, it couldn't just be changes based on what happened in the space race. It's changes based on the idea that his, the chance that history would repeat itself exactly the same as it did starts to feel less and less likely. So yes, we wanted to really lean into that idea of, 
there are random changes. There are also changes inspired by the space race and technology. And then there are changes inspired by Matt and I's personal preferences as sports team. Right, right. But yeah, who's to say that, you know, uh, our real universe isn't being dictated by uh, two gods who've been writing partners for 20 years, right? <laughs> there is one major, I don't know if it's a hurdle. Uh, I understand why it is present in the show. It's fundamental to the show that the Russian success in the space race bolstered their entire empire. And so one ideology you have to throw overboard is this idea that the Soviet Union's destruction was inexorable. It was baked into the system. Since the system was rotten to the core, it couldn't really exist and persist. I'm not saying that I had a problem with that. It's just that, you know, if someone said, hey, could this really happen? The first thing I would say is not Kovalev survives his surgery. I would say, I, I do think the rot of the Soviet Union, um, you know, history shows that it lasted until the 90s. I don't know that it really could have existed so much longer, knowing what we know about how they had to oppress their people to keep the system going. What do you say to that? Well, it's a great question because, and it's something we put a lot of thought into, actually. I think the, you're right, by the time the Soviet Union collapsed, it was in big trouble for years, and they were just barely holding on. Um, in our world, we do, like, we do feel that because of the continued space race, that the sphere of influence in the Soviet Union expands in the world. And we talk about that in, in a lot of stories, and by expanding their sphere of influence, they were able to expand their empire and bring in more resources than they would have otherwise. And part of that, I think, is also, you know, a lot of the economy of many countries is inherently based sometimes on confidence, on the idea of confidence in your country and its direction. And I think it's hard, like everything with alternate history, it's hard to say this would exactly happen the way we have it. But our theory was, yes, with the success of the program, not only would their sphere of influence, but their confidence would increase. And, you know, I think that that really did telegraph for us there was a possibility to survive, but that, the, you know, the problems would still be inherent there. It's not, we're not pretending that everything's great with the Soviet Union in our, in our alternate history either. But we do believe that with these changes, with the competition continuing, um, that it would, it would elevate the Soviet Union beyond, beyond where they collapsed in, in our actual history. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm fine having this interview be 80% about just alternative histories, but the, but the <laughs> show the show is, you know, that's a fascinating and delightful factor, but of course any TV show is going to rise and fall based on the audience's connection to characters and the plots and situations you could put the character in, but that's what I what I want to ask you. Were you and space and the fact that it's about space? How geeked out were you guys about space technology coming into this project? You know, it's really funny because, um, like, Ron has a very uh, uh, emotional connection to the Apollo program because he was a kid when that happened, you know. And Ben and I were kids when Challenger happened. So we have a different sort of formative memory of what the space program was. And I think, just to be honest, for, for Ben and I... Um, Space was not a thing we were obsessed with when we started this, this project. What we were fascinated by, our kind of entry point to it was this realization that Werner von Braun, the, the sort of genius behind the space program, had been a Nazi. And, and it was that character, that idea that this great man had such a complicated past, that was the, the thing that made us start to look at, from a character point of view, 
the type of stories we could tell in this show. And I think that, you know, the blend of that uh, point of view and Ron's point of view about the possibilities of space is really at the heart of the show. I have to say the the thing we did not see coming when we started this was that in season one, there was a Cold War and a space race. And here we are in season three, and I feel like we're back in the Cold War yeah. and the space race is kicking off. So in a strange way, I, space is feeling like it's becoming more and more relevant than ever. As um, as is Russia. Yeah, as is Russia. And that yeah, that's the part too. I mean, in season one of the show, you know, one of the, I think that the tough things in getting an audience was that so many young people didn't relate to the Cold War. They didn't, you know, for them, that was such a an idea that they can, you know, they can relate to in any way. And that, the thought that now it's back and, you know, the, the, you know, the boogeyman is back. Essentially we're back at this place of like, is, is both fascinating and depressing. I'd, I'd say in equal measures, but it does make the show um, feel more relevant than ever. I've looked at your guys, uh, IMDBs and I'm not getting, I didn't, I didn't pick up the strong whiff of sci-fi though. You did the umbrella Academy, which is superhero esque, but, so when you come in thinking, well, okay, we want to show a spaceship rotating, can we do that? Were you guys just wondering about the possibilities of what you can show and how real your space, uh, your vision for space can be? We always approach things from a character point of view when we're, we're writing things. So, you know, for us, the, the ideas come from, well, what dramatic thing can we put this character uh, situation, what dramatic situation can we put this character into um, that's really going to be compelling to watch? And then we figure out the technical aspects of it after that. We have a lot of advisors that help us figure that stuff out. Um, but uh, really, I think what I hope makes our show compelling is that Yes, there's a ship rotating, but it's really about Ellen and Deke in that ship. And are they going to live through this? You know, all of the sort of complicated interpersonal dynamics of of those two people in that moment. And so for us, uh, you know, there there is not a through line of our career really other than that idea, which is character. But there is a, a heart of um, character centric storytelling in what we try to do. Um, that I think this show has really enabled us to bring to life even more. So of the budget, which seems extremely high budget, does most of it go to the special effects or does most of it go to the music rights? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, the budget isn't as big as people think, which is always, I think, a, uh, you know, a compliment to the, our production team and, and everyone on our show. Especially with music, by the way, I will sell visual effects. Yes, we put a lot into visual effects for sure. Music, uh, you know, I got to give credit to our music supervisors, Maggie and Christine. You know, they find gems uh, for less than you would imagine. And I think the I, we love this part of the show where, you know, because we jump a decade every season, it's like Matt and I get to experience a jukebox of that era in the beginning of every season. They send us like hundreds of songs for each like we'll go through and really it's it's the fun of picking out the songs not only that resonate in terms of the era and make you feel like you're in the era which is really for us the key but also match what you're seeing on screen in the moment emotionally is a really i gotta say a part of this job that i really enjoy and and i have to say the 90s has been particularly fun for us because that was kind of our coming of age era so we we didn't we could rely a little bit on things that we used to listen to um, but yeah, the process, you know, 
the the budget is not as high as you think with music, and I think that's a testament to them finding these these hidden gems that maybe aren't as familiar, mixed in with the more obviously familiar songs. For All Mankind's third season concludes soon. It is on Apple Plus, and I would like to thank the co-creators and executive producers Matt Walpert and Ben Nadivi for joining me. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. As you may have heard, Ukrainian grain has been weighing on my brain. But a deal to extract the grain from the Ukraine has been torpedoed by the Russians. Oh, not literally torpedoed, but literally attacked by other large armaments. Ukrainian grain sustained great missile pain. The Russians' explanation for attacking Ukrainian grain shipments after agreeing to not only not attack, but offer safe harbor was something along the lines of, no, 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 not at all, not at all. The best laid plans remain retaining grain. So that grain in question, the one that uh, was attacked by a couple of Russian missiles, got out of the country. All the remaining grain that didn't spill upon the sand did. Uh, It was still exported, no matter how much the world disdains blood-stained Ukrainian grain. But it does illustrate a point, that grain is a global market, a commodity which trades throughout the world. And while Africa is doing really terribly when it comes to grain prices, and in fact, there is starvation occurring, the U.S. is not doing well either, which has been predicted for quite a while. Americans hit by the worst inflation in decades could face a summer surge in prices for bread and baked goods. The overall cost of groceries already up 10% in March from a year earlier. And now folks in the bread industry are warning that prices could rise another 35% in the months ahead. Pun not intended. Pun not accepted. That report from CBS Morning Show was a few months ago, but now we are seeing in some places $10 loaves of bread. Overall, the price for a pound of white bread in the U.S. hit a record $1.69 in June, a 12% jump from a year earlier. And if the U.S. can't have white bread, what is the U.S. all about? It shouldn't be shocking. You and I both understand how bread and grain and flour works. But what it tells us, or what maybe people seem not to understand, though I don't quite get what they're not getting, is that the price of grain affected as a commodity all over the world is just like the price of oil affected as a commodity all over the world. The bread story got me thinking, however, about something they always say when it comes to oil, energy independence. The United States should make so much oil, enough oil, and by make, I mean produce and bring to market so much oil that we achieve energy independence and we won't have to worry about these horrible foreign actors. But the United States has grain independence. We have bread independence. We make enough grain and bread to feed all Americans, but we still have to pay higher prices, spiking prices, because it, like oil, is a commodity. And when there is less grain in the world, even though the United States is making as much grain, prices spike. In fact, we're experiencing record spikes. Same thing with oil. Picture a huge bucket of oil. The world needs that oil. And let's say two cups of the oil in that bucket is American oil. That is also the two cups that we as Americans consume, which means we're 
oil independent. We consume as much as we make. So all this means is when we ladle out the substance, the fluid that's mixed together, we could tell ourselves a story that that two cups right there is good old American oil and there's no Saudi or Norwegian or Canadian oil sneaking in. But it's just a fiction. It's just thinking of the amount of oil in that bucket as our own rather than it actually being our own and we don't have to trade with the world and the prices in the world don't affect us. It's just thinking about the amount of cups of fluid in an overall bucket that changes, nothing else. There is, in fact, when you think about it, there's really no good case for commodity independence if you're not at war or you don't think the world will deprive you of that commodity. Crafting a policy that aims for independence when it comes to a commodity in times of peace really makes no sense. Because every time for the amount of quote-unquote independence that you gain when it comes to oil or grain or soybeans or radishes means you give something else up. You're more constrained. Usually it's you're paying higher prices because you're not engaging in the world market or your producers of those substances are getting hurt by not participating in the world market. On the other hand, there is an argument that says... so. To summarize where I've been so far, the idea of oil independence, pretty stupid. The apply it to the idea, which no one talks about, of grain independence. You'll see why it doesn't really create such a beneficial situation at all. Okay, that's the one hand. On the other hand, there is a loud argument that the U.S. needs to get out of the oil game altogether. Al Gore says this. Here, he is saying it on Meet the Press two days ago. Investing in more fossil fuel infrastructure that will yep. guarantee emissions uh, increasing for decades into the future, that's a horrible mistake that, that uh, at this point, we simply cannot afford to make that mistake. I like Al Gore, bordering on love of Al Gore, but Al Gore's wrong. Forgoing investing in oil infrastructure or building new facilities or new refineries, which are very hard to get built. It just means someone else is going to do it. Someone else who could be the enemy. Someone else who uses their cash crop of oil to chop up journalists or shell civilian areas or roll into its neighbor or, you know, to construct a better safety net than our society does. I'm thinking of Norway, a little bit of Canada. They make a lot of oil too. But either way, that oil if we're not making it, still just as needed by the world. Think about if the U.S. produced no oil. That's it. Al Gore's right. Sunshine movement. You've won the day. No oil coming out of the U.S. Would that be good for the world? The world and the American part of the world very much need the same amount of oil, whether we're producing it or not. 99% of the world's automobiles need it to run. Yes, of the 1.4 billion Cars and trucks on the road, 1.38 need petrol, need oil. So no U.S. oil means OPEC and Russia would have more dominance. I guess it means that the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund would be making every Norwegian citizen a little wealthier too. American oil, the kind we make and refine here, at least that means it stays a little bit cheaper for American consumers than imported oil. Uh, At least that does employ American workers. Uh, And shipping it here of course, contributes more to global warming than making it here. I don't see the case environmental, economic, logical for scrapping the American oil industry. 
That argument, the one I just made, the one I don't understand, most Democrats are forced to sign on to that argument. It is untenable among anyone who calls themselves an environmentalist to acknowledge, I mean, the reality is you got to make the oil, keep the oil in-house. That is the reality, though. Some of these environmentalists, a little more on the radical side, just occupied Chuck Schumer's office. So what this means politically in the United States is that a lot of Democrats either do agree with that statement, no oil domestically, or feel like they have to agree publicly. And what that does, it gives an opening to Republicans who are horrible on the issue of the climate, but savvy enough to point out at every possible turn that Democrats are a little bit crazy in their no new domestic production stance. Sensible Democrats will argue we have to wean ourselves off of oil. And of course we do. But that is a demand-side solution. When you wean a baby, the mother doesn't stop supplying milk or producing milk to get the baby to want to stop feeding. The parents feed the baby less and less, and eventually milk stops being produced. How did I get into Similac one supply chain issue at a time? Limiting supply of milk does nothing but make the baby mule out in anger or in colic. And some of our babies stage a sit-in at the offices of the leader of the one party. That's the only hope on these issues. So remember, when it comes to these commodities, oil is not going anywhere except into the tanks of almost all our automobiles for at least another decade. And also, the grain's the same no matter the terrain. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pasquez, the COO of Peachfish Productions. We've all been instructed to call her flight whenever speaking over intercoms or informal settings. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, And thanks for listening.